Well, if you got your Bibles, turn me to Judges chapter 6. If you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, we are in the He Is series, talking about the attributes of God, but really um, because um, of the, the personhead and the Godhead, we're talking specifically about Jesus and who He is. Uh, and um, you know, if you, if you read Colossians, if you read John 1, you know that Jesus was the active force in creation. Like, we don't separate... Um, in, in many ways, God from Jesus. I think sometimes, especially this week as we talk about the sovereignty of God, um, God's the mean guy and Jesus is the nice guy. Uh, and that is really a bad theology. And we'll talk a little bit about that as we get into it. But really today uh, is about he is sovereign. But I also, you can't separate his sovereignty from his goodness. So we're, we're doing two this week. It's he is sovereign and he is good. Uh, which I think sometimes is difficult to rec- rec- or, uh, reconcile in life. You know, I was thinking about just what we see as sovereign authority. Like, if you think about the word sovereign uh, on planet Earth, uh, you know, there's, if you study history, uh, a sovereign would be a king. You know, a sovereign would be the, the type of ruler, the type of leader, the type of person that would control a country that would be a complete total and utter authority. And, and you've studied those over history. We know that there's still sovereigns uh, that rule over their countries on planet earth. Um, you know, we think of monarchs aren't quite, quite the same as they used to be, but a sovereign would be, would be that. And you know, when we think about sovereign in scripture, I mean, I think about the amount of times that you see Lord in scripture. If you know um, anything about the Hebrew and the Greek, that word Lord that you see, it's over 7,000 times in scripture, is translated as sovereign. So it's difficult, I think, for us to kind of wrap our mind and our heart around any other description of God other than him being sovereign and that he operates in sovereignty. And I was thinking about how do we, how do we relate to that in terms of, you know, just even getting a, a sense of that type of control and authority. Because, you know, on planet Earth, most of us in the room aren't sovereign. I mean, we aren't. But as parents, there is a season, and I mean a brief one. In which you are sovereign and you are you rule and control. And Beth and I were watching this mom on the beach, and she's you know toddlers, two, three, four, five year old couple, couple of you know a boy and a girl just buzzing around her like bees, like not far from mom. Like and, and Beth always talks about parenting as those circles, like they you know you have this total dependency in the beginning, and then that circle starts to get wider and wider and wider, and they're more independent, 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 and then they are gone. And it's crazy how fast it happens. You know, I've got two in college and one in high school. So my circle is very, actually, they don't, there's no sovereignty in the Harmon household whatsoever. Uh, they tell me what to do. And, but, but at that point, you just see them buzzing around and mom is everything. Like she controls it all. She is where we go for boo-boos. She is the one that's going to make the water come and fill my hole when I dig it in the sand. She is the one that's, she's got juice boxes. I mean, she is all rule and authority. She's got crackers. And I mean, I always think of Whitney Potton. If she was in here, I would say, I mean, I just see Carson just cruising around. And my man is like, where's the food? Mom. I'm going to go straight to Mom. I mean, he does not, that kid, I love him. He's just like, if he, we would be in here in staff and he could just hear crackers being opened by somebody. He'd dart in and he'd just look at me like, hand it over, you know. Uh, but that's the sovereign rule and authority. And eventually that starts to move out and begin, you know, independence begins to happen. And the sovereignty of control and rule and authority begins to, to change. Right around middle school is kind of where I remember my kids were like, 
yeah, all right, I'm, I'm kind of done. Like all of a sudden, you know, when they're little, they you put, put them in matching outfits and do all that stuff. You see all these pictures, and then there's all of a sudden that moment where you see the older kid and the younger kid in matching outfits, and the younger kid's like, yay, and the older kid's just like, this is the last year this will ever happen on planet Earth. Um, and, and then, you know, and they think you're cool. Like when I was, there was in the sovereignty period, your kids, you are the hero as the dad. You are the center of rule and authority, but you're also, they want to be you. They want to do what you do. They want to be a fireman. They still want to be a fireman. They want to, they want to be that. They want to, that's what they, and then all of a sudden, you're not cool. Like you think you are, and then we're just in trying to be cool. It makes us that much more uncool, you know. They and, we, and where we were telling them what to wear, now they're not letting you leave the house with what you're wearing. Like, Dad, there you just can't do that. There's no way you can. I'd, I walk down the stairs sometimes, and Ella looks at me like, "Oh no, you need to go back up." And I'm like, "That's what I'm supposed to say to you as a daughter, you know? No, you're not going on a date with that. No, she's just like, Dad, you cannot go outdoors with that on. I don't care if you're doing yard work. People will be very." offended. Um, so there's the, our, our sovereign rule and authority. It's not that we want our kids to be completely independent. Our job is to transfer the, that, you know, that they would, as they latch on to our faith, that they would all of a sudden realize that, hey, we, we, God's put us for a short period of time on stewarding your life, but the real sovereign rule and authority and the trustworthy foundation is God. So you're not going from dependence to independence. You're going from dependence on mom and dad who should be reflecting who Jesus is and saying he is your real leader. He is your real sovereign. He is your real authority and you should put all your hope and trust in Jesus. So when we think about sovereignty, I think that gives you kind of a, a, a good picture. But what is biblical? Like I want to answer, there's three questions we're going to look at, look at today. One is how sovereign is God? Like I think, you know, if there is a scale, which there's, there really is not, you know, a scale, but how sovereign is he? Um, what if uh, he is not sovereign? And then how can he be sovereign and good? Like, I mean, I think those are, you know, how, how sovereign is God? Um, what if he's not sovereign? And how can God be sovereign and good? And I think that's the big question that we'll spend most of the time on. Okay, how sovereign is God? Like I said before, close to or more than 7,000 times, depending on your translation, the word Lord it comes. And sometimes it's sovereign Lord, which would be redundant, but because of the translation, it, it's, it's, it's in there. The adjectives is added in there. But what is biblical sovereignty when it pertains to God? Well, this is how John Piper puts it, almost uncomfortable. He says, when God acts, he acts in a way that pleases him. God is never constrained to do a thing that he despises. He is never backed into a corner where his only recourse is to do something that he hates to do. He does whatever he pleases. For instance, Psalm 135, 6, whatever I please, this is God speaking, I do in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all of the depths. If you read Job and you read God's response to Job when Job's wondering, why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you acting the way? Why has all this trouble come to me? God's response isn't, oh, I'm sorry, you didn't really understand how I was, you know, what was going on. He immediately begins to talk about how far the, the tide comes in and says, hey, who controls that? Where the sun sits in the sky, the way that it rises and falls. He basically is like, I control it all. Who are you to question me? You go, you go on in scripture. Jesus standing before Pilate makes a very sovereign statement. He says, you, Pilate, would have no authority over my son unless... Uh, over my son at all unless it had been given you for me. And that's 
in John 19, 11, that's the moment that Jesus is going to the cross. He's saying this, this whole moment is happening right now, not because you're making it happen in your authority, but there's an authority over yours that is driving this. Ephesians 1 says, I work all things according to the counsel of my will. As Peter's addressing the people and addressing the leaders at the time in Acts chapter 2, after Jesus has risen from the dead, he had been on earth for 40 days, more than 500 people had seen him. He's bringing the gospel and he wants everybody to know just how this went down. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, he said, you saw Jesus, you were around Jesus, you saw that he did things that only God could institute. But then he goes on, he says, this man was handed over to you by what? By God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. Now this is where it begins to get a little more uncomfortable talking about the sovereignty of God. This was God's, we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, the brutality, the wickedness, the sinfulness, and here's Peter saying, it was God's deliberate plan, and he knew about it. There was nothing outside of it that he was surprised by the cross of Jesus Christ. Talking about some serious sovereignty. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. He says, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam, and I always get that picture of light coming through the window, and you see the dust particles kind of floating around. If your house is like mine, dirty. Um, I'm kidding. Just joking. Um, dances on a sunbeam. Does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That's sovereignty when it comes to how sovereign is God. I'm going to guess what we're looking at is a very sovereign God that controls all things. Colossians 1, he is before all things. In him all things hold together. I mean, we're really singing that kind of idea that God is in control. He's faithful to place our hope and our trust in. But here's the tension. What do you think about? I mean, just on a personal level, when you think about the idea of God being sovereign in all things, including sovereign in salvation, he's sovereign in all things. You look around the world or what you're experiencing in your life, and if God is sovereign, then why? Why? Why suffering? You know, why are the things that are, that are going on in the world today, the tragedies across the globe and the tragedies that I know are happening inside of our church, the, the broken relationships, cancer, people facing death, people with relatives facing death, people that have experienced death over the last two to three years. Why suffering? Why hurt? Why does it feel like sometimes you know, when we, we talk about the victory of God, and God has won the victory, and things are, you know, this, you know, we lean towards that as we sing and as we come in on a Sunday, but we, we look around in our life. I mean, if we're all honest, how can he be sovereign and we see some of the things that we see? In all things, the dust in a sunbeam. Proverbs says, the roll of the die is not outside of his control. And that's going to scramble somebody's brain. They're like, really, everything? Then you start evaluating everything. And then when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death and you're wondering, what, why? What, what's, what's happening here? It's interesting, during 9-11, there was, there was the, the new atheist movement. A lot of people know some of the, the big players and the big atheists that speak a lot, um, that speak at conferences, that are on a lot of panels. Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, and Sam Harris. Their claim 
right after 9-11, if there is a God and he's supposed to be loving, there's little evidence of it. When you look at the death toll, when you watch, I mean, just recently, just all, I think, I don't know if anybody's watched a bunch of the specials that were on with 9-11 and watching planes hit those buildings and seeing the devastation. I mean, your gut, if you ever go through the memorial in New York City, I mean, I didn't know I would be like, I, I love history and I love going through those type things. By the time I got to the end of it, the journey of, of that, that, hit, that memorial, 9-11 memorial, I was in tears, weeping, seeing all the faces, hearing all the voices and, and how they pull you in to how devastating that was, or just seeing the wreckage and the rebar and the hole in the ground and what happened. God's sovereign. How is he good? I mean, do you feel that? T- I mean, that tension is something that I don't think any of us have ever reconciled. And some of today, I'll just tell you right now, you're not going to be able to reconcile all of it. The Apostle Paul would say in Romans 12, hey, there's, we can't possibly know the depths of the knowledge of God. I mean, this is a guy that's smart. He's at that, that he has just written in, in chapters 1 through 11 the greatest treaties of the gospel that you'll see in all of Scripture. It's considered one of the greatest, in secular history, one of the greatest literary works of all time, the book of Romans. And he's like, I, I don't understand some of the things that God does, but praise be to God. So the next question, I think we have to, to relieve some of the tension, is this. What if he's not sovereign? Okay, let's, let's go down the road, and this is something that's theologically popular in our culture right now because of the discomfort, because of all of the things that I've just said. Somebody experiences you know, a child dying. Somebody experiences something horrible, and then all of a sudden, maybe my theology's wrong. Maybe I've read the Bible wrong. Maybe my interpretation of who God is, maybe he's not as in control as we think he is. Maybe he's, he's a little more stand-up. Maybe he's watching the show a little bit more, thinking, I hope this happens, and I hope this happens. Maybe there's some prophetic nature to who God is and where he knows some things in the future, but he, he doesn't really know everything that's going to happen in the, in the details of our lives. But there's an expectation of how we operate in free will as God operates in his zone from where he rules. This idea is called open theism in its, its most extreme form, meaning God's not in control of everything, that God and man, there's this kind of handshake between There's certain things that we have to do in order for God to do the things that he can do. So I just want to ask these questions. What would be the problems with not believing in a completely and utterly sovereign God? Because I think there's some serious problems. There's some problems with the sovereignty of God in our mind. I mean, it creates some problems. But I think going the other direction, you're going to create just as many or more problems. And this, this leads us to that place of of some of the things that we, we can't understand about God, but, but where we trust him. I mean, we're, what, what, what would be the problem? One is, if, if there is some sort of restriction based on God and the things that he can do, then all of a sudden, some of the burdens, some of the responsibility, and some of the glory moves in, in our direction, doesn't it? We have to do things. Like, I mean, I, I, I've had these conversations, and I've, I've heard people say these things, and... You know, you wonder, like somebody saying, you're not healed because of some sort of sin, because of your be- obedience, because of your past, because of something. God's not healing you. There's something that's blocking your healing. It's kind of something that happens in, in what's called the Word of Faith movement. 
Like, you haven't done something. If there was more obedience, if there was more, more of this, then maybe you would be healed of your cancer. Maybe this would happen. And that's an easy thing for somebody to take on because if somebody's battling a terminal disease, you do think about everything. It's completely in the forefront of your mind. So you're thinking, what have I done along the way to deserve this? So it's easy to get somebody to believe that. And all of a sudden, it, God's hands are tied. If, if you ever hear the, those words like, we are the ones that unlock God's hands. God's hands are tied in these particular situations. Unless we step in, God can't move. There is nothing that you will find in Scripture that aligns with that. Nothing. You will see that God is completely and utterly and totally sovereign. In fact, if you look at when Jesus heals, look who he heals. Does he go to the people that have done it all right? Does he go to the Pharisees? Does he go to the Sadducees? Does he go to the people that are, that are the law abiders and that's where you see all the healing take place? No, you see it outside of the temple. In fact, you see it outside of Jerusalem. He goes into the margins. He goes to the prostitutes. He goes to the sinners. He goes to the furthest out. He goes to the rejects, the people that have not experienced any goodness, any grace from the society that they've been placed in. And that's where healing takes place. In fact, he says it very boldly in Luke chapter 15. He says, I've not come for the people that think they've got it all together. I've come for the sinner. There's a party in heaven. I mean, they do the happy dance when one sinner repents. 99 people that think they've figured it out and, and they've got it right with God, that's not where the party happens. The party happens when the person that doesn't deserve it and understands that and repents and says, I don't deserve the grace that I'm getting, but I'm healed. I was blind and now I see. I don't know why it's me, but that's what's happened. That was Jesus on planet earth. So there would be a problem there that based on that, the burden would be on us. And I don't think that's what we want. And it's certainly not the way that I believe God operates. What if he's not sovereign? Another thing, in, in your wisdom, you decided to do what's right and follow Jesus. That would be the way that we would think about our own salvation. If, if God is required in some way for you to move, like if your salvation in any way is part of your good decision. You know, Pastor Larry preached a good message that Sunday and just it clicked for me. All of a sudden something happened in my mind and all of a sudden it was, it was like, you know what? I've been dumb all this time and now the wisdom has just come on me. And I hope that some people will, I could, you know, portray to other people, you know, what's right. And, and all of a sudden, what does that do? That puts me in a position. I've made a good decision. I've had a little bit different experience. I've grown up in the right home. People have poured this wisdom into me. And I, with all the right information, with all the right background, with all the right pedigree, have made the decision to become a Christian. Thank goodness I made my moves and my walk towards Jesus. All of a sudden, where does that put us? And this is, this is one of the problems why the world around us cannot stand the church. Because all of a sudden, you've elevated yourself and put yourself in the elite group we would call Christian. Because we made the good decision to follow Jesus. But what does it say in Ephesians? Ephesians 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. The beginning of that, it says what? You were dead in your sins and trespasses when he found you. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. That doesn't mean you were kind of bad walking in the wrong direction and then all of a sudden, bing, you made a good idea and now I'm going to walk in the good direction. You were dead. And God reached down into the depths of your death, your spiritual deadness where you, it says in scripture, clearly, you, while you were walking away, while you were in the most rebellious part of your life, Christ died for you. 
It wasn't when you were starting to make a good decision. There was this kind of, it was this thing where, where God comes in to you being dead in your sins and trespasses, not able to make that decision outside of the Spirit of God, reached into your deadness and breathed life into your dead lungs. That's the sovereignty of God working in your salvation. If you begin to take credit for your salvation like it's something good that you've done or some decision that you've made along the way or some environment that was created for you in which you got saved and all of a sudden God is not on the table in that situation because I believe those situations are created. I believe those circumstances are created. I think there's a lot of Pastor Larry's that have brought the heat, but it's the Holy Spirit that saves, not Pastor Larry. It's the sovereignty of God. In your salvation. There's no one that you can give glory and honor and praise to for your salvation other than Jesus and the work that He's done on the cross in God's sovereign plan from before time began. That is God's sovereignty. So, what if He's not sovereign? Well, one, we would be stepping away from the Bible. Two, we would be attaining glory that was only meant for God, putting all your hope and faith in a God that has. Restrictions would be a huge problem if he's not sovereign. I mean, do you want to put your hope and your faith in a God that's not in control and have all rule and authority? Is he the one that's worth worshiping? I mean, I was thinking about God saying these things. I hope, I hope Derek doesn't make the wrong choice. Like, I'm thinking about God biting his nails going, oh, I really want him to go that way. You know, just not in control, not able to move me by the power of the Holy Spirit wherever he wants me to go. You know? God saying things like, whew, this COVID thing, this was unexpected. You know? The election, oh my, oh my goodness. I, I really wouldn't have guessed it would have gone this, this way. You know, I thought maybe the other guy, I mean, this is like something pulled out of, this has happened, you know, I have no idea. I mean, what does it say in Romans? That every authority that's put in place, whether good or bad, was placed there by who? By God. We talked about that when we were in Romans. Romans 13, that we submit to the authorities that are put, put in place inside of the rule and realm of morality and where God wants us to operate, whether good or bad. In fact, I believe God, if you read Scripture, God leveraged more bad kings than good kings for his own glory and for his renown because he put them there. You look at Nebuchadnezzar. Read the book of Daniel. you got awful kings. There is, I mean, there's mostly bad kings over Israel. And he leverages them for, for his glory and the good of those people to bring those people home when they are lost and wandering. I mean, can you imagine, you know, God saying those things? Wow, I don't know what happened in the election. That was a, no, he didn't just exert power in the election. He ordained it. And that bothers some of us because we're like, look who's in office or look who's, you know, God placed that person there. Put him there. Why? You know, we get to ask God at some point. And maybe we'll, we see on this side of heaven, oh, this is why. We have no, no you know, that's one of the, the things about us and God. We are not God. He does what he wants to do for the reasons that he wants to do them. Here's the, the reality, you know, thinking about how sovereign is God. He's really sovereign. What if he's not sovereign? I don't think that's something that any of us really want, but it still causes some problems in our mind. And we're not going to resolve all of those things from our perspective. But I do, want to, I do want to get around the idea of the third question. Is how can God be sovereign and good? Because when we were talking earlier, it's like we look around and we're like, wow, how does this even work? How can I trust in him? 
And for those of you that are walking through the valley of the shadow of death, you get, this, is, this is troubling for me. This isn't something that, that I've, I feel like I've got figured out. I've had conversations in the last two weeks with my wife thinking, I, you know, you just get in those places. Like, is God just distant, moving the, the chess pieces in his sovereignty without any care for me whatsoever? Is that the way that he operates? Is that what he's doing? So I want to quickly just turn to Judges chapter 6, and I want to kind of break this down into four parts. As we look at how can God be sovereign and good, what would be the answer to that? Well, the first one is, before we even dive into that scripture, is that we desire instant good. We want the good right now, and God desires eternal good. Judges chapter 6, just to give you some context, this is a story of a man named Gideon who was a judge. And Israel, if you read the book of Judges, things have gone south. Like, things were really good. Like, you get out of Exodus, and, you know, Joshua gets handed the mantle from Moses, and then you have the conquest, which is a little bit, you know, it's troubling to read, read Joshua as well. But you get into Judges, it gets even more troubling. Because things go very downhill. It's a, one of the, considered one of the darkest parts of the Bible because the Israelites completely just do the opposite of what God told them to do as they move into the promised land. Like they're in there with a bunch of other people. The Canaanites, they are, in, they are for, our, for our practical purposes, Christians placed in a pagan world. I know we wouldn't understand that, but um, that's exactly what happened. And they did it all wrong. And things, it was just a constant cycle of Rebellion and repentance. Rebellion, God moving and doing something intensely to bring that repentance uncomfortably, and then repentance. And this is one of those seasons where the Israelites were doing whatever they wanted. They, they were very into to worshiping God, but also worshiping Baal. They were just into the culture. They were into what was going on around them. They looked no different than the people around them. And so God's, God's moving at this point, and God's handing them over to this group of people called the Midianites. And the Midianites, every time the Israelites are you know, raising crops and trying to feed their people, trying to survive in the land that God's put them in, the Midianites come rolling in and they just steal everything. They're like, woo, look at that, man. They got some chicken wings. I'm taking those. Um, they just would come in and plunder the whole place. Any food that they had, anything of value, any new technology that was being developed in Israel, anything that they had, it was just being ripped from them and taken away. And this had happened for years. And the, the, the people were beat down. Like they were in a place of being really beat down. And so an angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Oprah. Because good things happen on Oprah. Um, which belonged to Joash the Abyssalite. While his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press. So he, this, you wouldn't go to the wine press to beat out wheat. But he was hiding it from the Midianites. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now you're going to find out later that Gideon is not considered a mighty man of valor. He's the least of his tribe, of the least tribe. Like he was the guy that people are like, just Gideon, he's weird. We're, we don't really consider him. You know, I mean, you just think in your mind. The guy that's just least, that nobody would pick him on the, on the kickball team. He's just not that guy. So Gideon responds, Please, sir, and he doesn't know. You realize here, he doesn't really know. So it makes me think of the appearance of the angel of the Lord in this. It doesn't come in the typical fashion of light, blinding, where everybody's in fear. Um, because it doesn't say that. Most of the time you see an angel of the Lord, it says, and the angel has to say, do not fear. Because, you know, just, they look like lightning. 
So Gideon said to him, please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our father recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. I mean, this is him just looking around like we're looking around. And he's saying, if God is sovereign, if God is controlling things, he used to do all of that stuff. Look at what's happening in Egypt. Now, Gideon is forgetting that there was you know, people complaining. It was 40 years of wandering. He's forgetting about his father, Abraham, who, although God made that promise, he waited a hundred years, like he was a hundred years old. His wife was 99, still waiting for a child to fulfill that promise. They're like, is God really going to do what he says he's going to do? Because I don't think so. And, you know, Abraham even usurps the plan and, you know, has a kid with his handmaiden. So, you know, he's, Gideon's painting this picture, which I think we often do. When we feel forsaken by God, I mean, have you ever been in that place where you're like, hey, Somebody's saying God's, you know, somebody's giving you one of those sweet little verses like, you know, you know, God never gives you more than you can handle because that's in the Bible. It's not. Um, but somebody comes along and says something to you like, hey, God's with you. You know, if, you know for those who love God, you know, God's going to do anything he possibly can according to his purposes to lead you to some goodness. And, and what's our response to that? Well, that's not what I'm experiencing right now. I mean, have you ever felt abandoned or forsaken by God? I mean, I have. I have. And, and you question, and my tendency is to do what he's doing. What do we do? We look, at, we look at the past and we look at other people. We're like, they prosper. Good things are happening to them. I mean, I know people that are walking through sickness and walking through pain in our church. And I, I, I know what that's like to look around at people that are healthy, like dirt bags. And I'm thinking, God, why do I feel this way? In the dirt bag. He's just dancing. He's no problems. Where are you? I mean, you ever feel that way? I mean, I just feel like I relate to him. Just like, hey, the Lord's forsaken us and given us into the hand of the Midianites. We ask the same thing. But, but see, we desire instant good and God's desire is for eternal good. He's doing something. And all of the stories that even Gideon was mentioning in God's faithfulness in the past, it never happened in the timeline that they wanted it to happen. 40 years of wandering. Look at Abraham waiting 100 years for the child. We think, you know, this, is, this needs to happen now. And God's doing something. As it says in the book of James, there's a refinement that happens through suffering. There's a refinement that happens on planet Earth in a world that's full of sin in which God shapes us and refines us. And changes the way that we operate. Beth told me a story I love. When she was a little girl, she was learning, trying to learn how to ride a bike. I don't know if you were you know, a late goer on bike riding. Just not, not a good gym. She's like, Shh, yes, I was. Um, and her dad, I don't know if you know anything about her dad. Dad, four daughters, but he's a Marine. Like, he's, and people say, like, isn't he a retired Marine? No, don't ever tell a Marine that they're no longer a Marine. Once a Marine, always a Marine. And he was a, uh, see, you're a, um, he was a uh, Marine Corps pilot in Vietnam. The dude, I mean, if you just see him walk in, you go, oh, that's him. Uh, you would know. I mean, he's, he's definitely the guy. Anyway, you can imagine him teaching four girls how to ride bikes um, and wishing he had boys. Um, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. He loved his four girls. But he's teaching Beth how to ride a bike, and she's just not getting it. Like, it's just not happening. She's bloody, beat up, doing the thing. And finally, he just takes the bike and goes, Shong. he goes, all right. Don't come back in the house until you, until you can ride this. I'm out. And he goes inside. 
Now, I'm thinking of a five or six-year-old girl, and I'm thinking how abandoned and how terrible might she have felt in that moment. Like, I can't do this, and I certainly can't do this by myself. And my father just walked in the house and said, I can't, I can't come home. I can't. Where am I going to go? I must throw the bag and just wander <laughs> like Cain. But I can just imagine the, 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 the feeling of abandonment in that place. The first, just feeling forsaken by your father. Now, was that in her father's heart? Because guess what happened? I mean, you put a five or six-year-old outside and say, you're not coming home until this is done. What do you think happened? Oh, she learned how to ride that bike. She learned how to ride that bike. And she mentions this. She goes, I, all I can think of is sometime later going down the street by my house with my hands up and my feet just hanging off that deal and experiencing just such joy at riding that bike and thinking, I'm so glad my dad went inside and put that bike in front of me and said, you're not coming home until you can ride that bike because he was in it for the long game. He knew what was good. He knew what was happening. And you know what? He, I would imagine that that Marine, because I know him, he has a big softy, four daughters, that he walked inside and there was probably tears in his eyes. And I bet he never left the window as he was watching her. One time after another, falling with tears in his eyes, going, I can't take it. I want to run out there. I want to get out there. But in his sovereignty in his rule, in his authority, and knowing what was best, he went inside. And to her, it felt like being forsaken and being abandoned, and it was the opposite. He was leaning towards her goodness and what was best for her. Love that story. And as you continue, you see that kind of play out in the story of Judges chapter 6 and verse 14. It says, the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do, not, do I not send you? And he said, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the runt. I am the least in my father's house. I'm just not the guy. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And I think for, for you and me, I mean, this is number two, in, in his sovereignty, God creates dependency. Like he, God is not always just going to go pick the, the greatest guy. In fact, God doesn't need to pick any particular person for their greatness because in comparison to God, none of us are on his level. In fact, if you look in the whole story of Scripture, God often picks the unlikely characters. David wasn't in the lineup. He wasn't the strong, strapping brother that was lined up when he was chosen as king. Gideon was not the guy that you would think would be taking his meager army up against 100,000 Midianites. He was the weakest of his clan. And he's saying, I can't do this. I'm from the weakest tribe. True, you can't do it. But you weren't meant to do it on your own. Because look what the Lord says. He says to him, but I will be with you. And you strike the Midianites as one man. I will be with you. There's a, a dependency that, that takes place in that, in that space. It's the, it's the, it goes back to that idea of parents. When your kids are young and they want to be independent, 
They think they know, but they don't know. And there's that young age where it's very obvious. They're looking at you wanting to do something, and you're like, hey, bro, you keep do- I- you're going to die if you do that. I just want you to know. Like running in the street, you know, coat hanger in the light socket. Hey, just saying. They don't need you to be passive. They need you to be sovereign. They need you to have authority, and they need you to be with them. They resist. I mean, if you want to you know, create a kid that nobody ever wants to be around, give them everything that they want rather than be the sovereign authority that they need. And this is, in God's sovereignty, he creates dependency because that's what needs to happen. Think about the the whole problem on planet Earth. When we think about the suffering, when we think about the sin, when we think about the brokenness, did God create that or was that created by the, the sin and the enemy? And what was the sin? And We always think of sin as this gratuitous thing. Sin in Scripture, at its root level, is rebellion and rebellion to become independent, independent of God. That's what happened in the garden. It was two kids that were completely dependent on their heavenly father, and everything was good, everything was right. They were put, they were hand-in-hand ruling over creation. And the enemy comes and says, you can be independent. You're totally dependent on him, and you could be a God just like him. You could run your own life. You could control your own stuff, just like children. I want to do my own thing. i got my own life. i got my own way of doing things way before they're meant to. That was Adam and Eve in the garden. It was the beginning. The independent heart is what drew them into the enemy's plan to, to curse the earth with sin. Total dependence on him. And I love the way that the, the story begins to unfold. If you jump into... To, Judges chapter uh, 7, as the story continues, the Lord says to Gideon, as he's planning, now there's a whole lot that goes on. Gideon does not fully trust God, so he lays out the fleece. I mean, if you've been in Christian worlds, you know, everybody's laying out a fleece. I laid out a fleece before the Lord to see if we're supposed to move to Texas. Um, Gideon lays out all, this, all of these different things to, to verify that this is right. He so doesn't believe that it could possibly be him and that he is supposed to lead this attack against the Midianites that he does all this stuff. And God confirms it every single time. But then he's got all of his men together. And what does God do? Well, this is kind of what, what the Lord says. He says. The Lord says to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into, your, into their hand. And he's thinking, why, why? there's never too many. We're fighting 100,000 people. We're already too, too little. We don't have enough. He says, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. God's being very clear with Gideon. He takes them from thousands and pairs them down. He does it very interesting way. You should go read this passage to 300. And if you think about the armies, it's estimated that they could, could range in the 45,000 to 100,000 And all of a sudden, there's 300 left at the end of this whole deal. And Gideon's thinking, this is the most ridiculous thing. But his faith is now risen, and they begin to execute this plan. And if you see the rest of the story, this 300 men defeat 100,000 Midianites with a crazy, crazy plan. And God was, and there was no way that it wasn't God. Happened in the middle of the night. They freaked them all out. They end up killing each other, and the Israelites win. But if you look at this, this passage and how in God's sovereignty he creates dependency, I started thinking about the refining fire that happens 
in some of the most difficult circumstances, when we think we've been abandoned, when we think God's not with us and he is with us. And First Peter, he's speaking to the people amongst, in the middle of persecution. He says, in all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, that it may result in praise, glory, and honor when Christ Jesus is revealed. Saying you're going to walk through these things because God has a greater plan. He's going to lead you to depend on him more. And his plan is an eternal good. The third reason or the third thing that we can see God's sovereignty and his goodness joining together is that God weeps over tragedy, sickness, hurt, and abandonment. I think when we think of a sovereign God, we don't see the weeping. I don't think we see the father looking through the window at the daughter riding the bike. But if you read the story of John chapter 11, I'll just paraphrase for time one of the most beautiful resurrection stories in Scripture. Jesus has got the disciples, and he also has some friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and they all hung out together. They were all very, very tight. In the beginning of John chapter 11, um, people come to tell the, the disciples and tell Jesus, hey, your friend Lazarus is sick. And Mary and Martha are really upset. You need to come. They know he's got the healing power. They're like, Jesus needs to come and heal Lazarus. And it says at the very beginning of the passage that he loves him. But Jesus says, in his sovereignty, I'm going to stay for two more days. It is for the glory of the Son of Man. It is for the glory of God that I'm going to wait. And basically he was saying it was, it's for the glory of God that, that Lazarus is going to die which is a crazy idea. And so Lazarus ends up dying. And Jesus could have gone. He wasn't very far, just a few miles from Bethany. And Lazarus dies. And everybody's confused. They're like, we know that he loves him. We know these are his good friends. What's happening? We don't, we don't even understand. But in the midst of this tragedy, in the midst of his really good friend dying and his other two friends are the, the sisters of Lazarus, Mary and Martha. He comes rolling into town, and Martha comes out. Mary can't even. She's so mad and frustrated. She doesn't come out first. Martha comes out like, I need to, we need to go through this systematically and understand exactly why Jesus let this go down. And then you see in the, in the very center of that interaction between Mary and Martha and Jesus rolling into Bethany, and, and he knows. He knows because of who he is. This is the God-man. He knows the end of the story, but in the midst of the tragedy, what happens? Shortest verse in the Bible, what, is it, what does it say? Anybody know? Jesus wept. He wept. And everybody around, and when all of this was going on, it was said multiple times, all the people that are watching, see, see how he loves them? Now, there's something very, they don't, in the middle of this, they don't understand it. They're thinking, if God is sovereign, if he can heal, if he can raise people from the dead, if he can do what, what, what's going on here? They don't understand in the middle because the middle's messy, and that's where you and I are. We're in the messy middle. But in the messy middle, we see a God that weeps in our tragedy, weeps in our brokenness, weeps when something bad happens. This is the confusing thing about God's sovereignty and who he is. Why would he weep if he's sovereign? I don't know. But it, but it begins to help me understand his sovereignty and his goodness being inseparable in Scripture. Because I need him to be sovereign. Because that's who I want to submit to. That's who I want to throw my life before. That's who we want to follow and worship. But he also, he also weeps in our tragedy. He's with us. He's not separated from 
from that. He's in the middle of that when you're going through it. He's with you. He's walking with you. He never leaves you. He never forsakes you. In fact, he weeps with you. He can empathize with you. And that leads me to my fourth point. God's sovereignty and goodness shine brightest at Calvary. It's amazing when we question it. It's amazing how many things get answered at the cross of Jesus Christ because the cross is the most beautiful collision of God's sovereignty and his goodness. Because he sovereignly planned out the cross, the brutality and the bleeding out of his own son at the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross is this beautiful collision of his sovereignty and his goodness, of his wrath and of his love. None of those things fit together until you look at the cross. We have a suffering Savior. We have a sovereign God and a suffering Savior. You can't separate the two. We want to separate Jesus is the nice one and God's the mean one. They are the same. God did not send the repairman to go down and fix things because he was too holy and too great. No, God himself in the person of Jesus came down to become nothing. It says Philippians 2 that he became nothing unrecognizably, just was one of the people walking on planet earth, going through the same things you were going through, experiencing abandonment, being forsaken, not just by the people around him, not just by his own people, but by his friends. One of his best friends, his, his three would, would say, I will never leave you, Jesus. I will never, I'm going to fight for you. And then denies him a few hours later, three times. He knew what it was to feel the hurt of abandonment, of rejection. He was rejected by his own father and abandoned by his own father on the cross. You know why? So that you would never be abandoned, so that you would never be forsaken, to be the one that fills the gap for you and me. Sovereignty and goodness colliding at the cross. God's wrath and his love colliding at the cross of Jesus Christ. So how does this affect us and why does this matter? I mean, I think about prayer. What's the point? You know, why do we pray? If God's sovereign, if he, he controls the, the flip of the die, why would, we, why would we pray? If God is sovereign, if he's in control, all rule, authority, everything's under his, in his hand and his command, I would say, why would I not pray to that God? I want to pray to the God that controls it all. I want to, I want to pray to the God that, that has all rule and authority. I want to pray to the God that's capable. I think about that mother on the beach and the little buzzing kids just buzzing around her, not ever getting too far away and knowing, oh, I know where to go. I know where to go where the goodness is. You know, I know where the juice box is. She's got it. That's, that's where, this is, this, is, this is who's controlling everything. This is where my safety is. This is who's going to put me in my car and in my little seat. And I'm going to wake up at home in my bed clean and I'm not even going to remember it. totally dependent. I'm gonna put, I mean, that child is going to put their life, they're not even going to know, they're just going to, they just see her and they're just like, that's where it all comes from. It all emanates from mama. While that changes on planet earth with, with us as parents, God uses that familial, familial language and the parental language to give us the idea of our heavenly father, give us the picture of who Jesus is and what he accomplishes and that he's worthy to, to pray to, to cast all our cares upon him because he cares for us. 
You know why we can know that? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how, how will he not graciously give us all things? Let's stand. You know, I love the disciples because they were always confused. And I think sometimes we get in, into the Bible and into theology and kind of ruminate on certain things. And we get in certain seasons of life, and I certainly do. And I just look up and I'm like, why? But at the end of the day, I, I, in John chapter 6, there's this interesting exchange between Peter and, and Jesus. And a lot of confusing things had just gone down. And, he's, and a lot of people had just walked away from following Jesus because he started talking about communion, you know, eating my flesh and drinking my blood. And they're like, this dude's weird, starting a cult. Let's get out of here. And then he asks the disciples and Peter, Peter's response because of what he had seen, because of what he knew about Jesus is, where else would we go but follow you? I don't know the answers to any of these questions, but I've seen you work. And I know you have the words that lead to eternal life. So I'm with you. I'm with you. And I would just say, as we, as we have just an opportunity today to receive prayer, that you're, when you receive prayer, you're, you're receiving something from God himself, the sovereign one on high that is not removed from your suffering and your anguish, who knows your name, knows who you are, and so we're going to open up in just a few minutes, just an opportunity for you to bring your life before God. And maybe that's what you need to do. Some of you, it's, it is, I'm in the middle of my marriage falling apart or in the middle of cancer or in the middle of pain or in a situation that I don't know how to reconcile it. Or I've just been walking through loneliness and depression. I've had an identity crisis. Whatever that may be, God wants to heal you. He wants to restore you. And he can do those things for your good and for his glory. We believe the power of the Holy Spirit works in that way. But some of you, I think, just need to surrender your life to a sovereign God and say, I'm going to give my life to you. I'm going to give my life to you. So just as we worship, just allow the Holy Spirit. If there's a, something that's resistant right now, some of you have that, you're thinking, that's me, but I'm not going forward. The Holy Spirit's working on you. In fact, you're not going to be able to resist him. <laughs> he's going he's to move you into that place of surrender to him. And it is the best thing ever to do it. Because it takes the burden off of your shoulders and it gives it to the person that actually can handle all of the things that you're walking through. Jesus, we love you. We, we love that you are capable but we also can't believe that you love us as much as you do in an incomprehensible way that you would give away your life that we might have life.